Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 6, The Synagogue of Satan. Just as masters, when they examine their stewards' accounts, are strict to punish any negligence, so also, when the demon inquires into the affairs and actions of his subjects at his sabbaths, he terribly vents his wrath upon those who cannot show proof that they have gone on increasing in crime and wickedness. For none escapes punishment if they cannot prove himself guilty of some new crime since the last meeting. But to retain his master's favour, he must always show that he has steeped himself in some new sin. Nicolas Remy in his Demonolatry There are two good methods that may be used for their trial. The one is the finding of their mark, and the trying the insensibleness thereof. The other is their fleeting on the water, for, as in a secret murder, if the dead carcass be at any time thereafter handled by the murderer, it will gush out of blood, as if the blood was crying out to heaven for revenge on the murderer, God having appointed that secret supernatural sign for the trial of that secret unnatural crime. So it appears that God hath appointed, for a supernatural sign of the monstrous impiety of the witches, that the water shall refuse to receive them in her bosom, that have shaken off the sacred water of baptism, and willfully refused the benefit thereof. James the Sixth and First in his Demonology. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Now, over the last few weeks, we have looked at witchcraft trials throughout Germany during the height of the panics. We've covered the way in which the trials escalated, and how they could rapidly break down societies into paranoid mobs. When these panics were in full swing, trying to stand against a witch panic of the likes of Trier and Bamberg was often a death sentence, and we have heard of multiple cases where vocal opponents of the trials were denounced, arrested, and executed for the very crimes they had previously disputed. Today, before we change locale, we will have a look at the most common aspects of the trials themselves. While we've considered the possible reasons that a witch panic would break out in episode 2, and have looked at specific panics over the last few episodes, we have only brushed upon how the trials were actually conducted. Aside from occasional references to the specific manner of torture used, so far my descriptions of trials have consisted of they were denounced, they were tortured, and then they were executed. Today we're going to look at the ways trials were most commonly conducted, uh, two specific methods of interrogation, other than just, you know, through torture. We will also consider the definition of a witch's sabbat, which I've referred to multiple times, but have so far actually failed to describe. So let's describe it. The term sabbat can be interchanged with sabbath, and both words come from the Hebrew word shabbat, meaning day of rest. In Judaism, this day is the time between Friday evening and Saturday evening, while in Catholic and Protestant Christianity, among others, the day of rest is Sunday. And for both religions, this day is often accompanied by pious events. 
The Witches' Sabbath, however, has no broad specific day, although the trials in some regions have a number of confessions that refer to specific days of the month. A witch Sabbath was similar to a Christian Sunday, in that the witches of the area would gather to pay homage to their spiritual liege. Alternative names for these gatherings were the Convent, or the Synagogue of Satan, hence the title of today's episode. From here on, the differences are pretty obvious. For starters, witches were thought to fly to these gatherings, riding a giant animal, transforming into an animal, with enchanted household items or under their own steam through a process called transvection. One example I've come across is of a woman smearing a magical paste over a broom and using this as her vehicle to the Sabbath. Yes, this is a witch riding a broomstick. Other times, travel was much more mundane. In the case of Dietrich Flader, the judge from Trier, whose trial we discussed in episode 3, he was said to have arrived at the Sabbath in a golden carriage. However, these methods of transport were only relevant when the Sabbath was a physical meeting. In many cases, witches confessed to having attended the Sabbath in their dreams, or psychically. This method of Sabbath became helpful when a witch hunter had to explain how exactly a woman could confess to attending the Sabbath in cases where their presence elsewhere was confirmed, such as in cases where the husband was beyond reproach and confirmed that his wife had been next to him all along. Another way of resolving these contradictory situations was simple. The devil had the power to instantaneously transport a witch to his presence while leaving a counterfeit body behind to delude any witnesses. Another option considered by witch hunters that believed the official church line, that witchcraft was a delusion, as the devil had no power, was that the witch had simply been tricked by the devil, and had never gone to the Sabbath. They'd still committed a sin and a crime, however, because their intentions were criminal, so this rarely saved them. The belief that witchcraft was inextricably linked to the Sabbath spread rapidly throughout the 16th century. When in Stitterus and Kramer, the authors of the Malleus Maleficarum, were writing at the close of the 15th century, there is little mention of a Sabbath in their work. They refer to a gathering of witches, but it does not take the prominence that it later would. Bengt Ankalu and Stuart Clark reference the court records of the Polymon of Paris, one of the most prestigious courts in Europe at the time, and one fully deserving a proper pronunciation. Before the 1580s, only about half of the witches the Polymon ordered executed were questioned about their role in the Sabbath, but in the 1590s and onwards, more than 90% of those executed for witchcraft were grilled on the topic. Of those witches that the Polymon questioned but did not execute, the number of cases in which the Sabbath was brought up was as low as a fifth before 1587. Similarly, after this period, the number rose to half. When Peter Binsfeld and Nicholas Remy were writing at the end of the 16th century and into the 17th, the witch Sabbath was a central theme of their demonological theory. Ankerloo and Clark point out that interest and belief in the witch's Sabbath coincided with the escalation of witch trials, but point out that the, quote, cause-effect relationship was far from automatic, end quote. So, imagine for a second that you're a witch. You've managed to make it to the Sabbath by your chosen method. Let's go with Johannes Unius's confessed way, that of a flying black dog. 
So you're here, and you're not late, which is important, because those that are late are, quote, brutally punished by the devil, end quote. But where is here? Well, it depends on where you live. Your local Sabbat could be on the Bald Mountain in Poland, in the Black Forest in Germany, Stonehenge in England, or anywhere really with a mound or a hill that has a reputation for magic, or fairies or spirits. Once here, you would take part in any number of depraved, blasphemous activities. Drinking, dancing, child murder, you know, all the usual party games. Often the child murder would be combined with a nice dose of cannibalism, because there's no need to let things go to waste, you're not animals. During these festivities, the devil may pop his head in, because he was just passing by, or he was there from the start, it depends on the confession. Well, you're full of alcohol, and old Lucifer is looking rather dashing. The moonlight is glinting off his horns, and has he done something with his hooves? Next thing you know, you're part of a satanic orgy with your neighbours and colleagues, who you of course know by name and will happily give up once you're in the strapado. As the night winds down, the devil gives you each your orders. Greta, you're in charge of killing your neighbour's cows. Hans, you're on plague duty this week. New witches would sign a devilish pact in their own blood, and everyone would then return to their beds, or their bodies if this was a psychic gathering, and go about their business. These are just some of the most common themes we find in confessions of witches, and, of course, the theological tirades spawned by these confessions. I should say that it is, of course, important not to try and paint all of early modern Europe with the same sabbatical brush. Different regions had different depictions of the Sabbath, and there was rarely anything resembling, in the words of historian Darren Aldridge, a, quote, composite belief system, end quote. Key differences in the Sabbath can be easily seen, depending on the faith of those extracting a confession. The Burgundian Catholic Henry Burgot describes a blasphemous mass taking place, with the body and blood of Christ, rather than wafer and wine, instead being a turnip and urine. While James VI and First of Scotland and England claimed that the centrepiece of any Sabbath was a demonic sermon, parodying a key part of Scottish Protestant services. Simply put, the worst actions imaginable to these writers would be doing the complete opposite of what they considered righteous and holy. Clearly the devil, as a poor reflection of God, would demand his servants conduct rituals that are poor reflections of Christian services. However, many of the rumoured activities of which Sabbaths have been previously applied to the activities of other enemies of Christian orthodoxy, namely heretics, pagans, Jews, and of course Muslims, hence the use of the term synagogue. Even the lepers found themselves subject to these rumours without a leg to stand on, Badum Tish. Norman Cohen has made the case that much of the supposed elements of the witch Sabbaths were essentially recycled from previous persecutions, and that this moral ammunition, if you will, was used to discredit completely unrelated groups. He uses the example of Native American tribes, who were asserted to be, quote, excelled in unnatural cruelty, sacrificing children and offering them to devils, end quote. These similarities between previous and future persecutions, combined with the fact that there is no evidence, anywhere, at any time, of anything resembling the acts described as witch sabbats, suggests that the phenomenon of the sabbat was an invention, deliberate or otherwise, of generations of demonologists 
witch hunters and pamphleteers building on the efforts of the previous generation. Now, there were some theological problems with these descriptions of witch sabbats. One, as we mentioned earlier, was whether the devil had the power to transport his servants such distances, as well as to cover up their absence, and some theologians therefore were of the opinion that the devil simply tricked his witches, since God did not allow him such power. Similarly, reports of witches turning themselves or others into animals were often written off as either figments of the human imagination, or the devil being able to replace humans with animals fast enough to make it appear as if they transformed. This, by the way, was one explanation for the existence of werewolves, a topic I hope to devote some time to in the future. The strong focus of the Sabbat on demonic intercourse also posed problems. Namely, could a woman become pregnant from having sex with the devil? And the answer was... Sometimes. Some argued that, while the devil had no reproductive power of his own, his succubus servants could often steal human semen from the men they seduced, and used it to give witches human children. These human children could then be replaced with a demon immediately after their birth, so quickly that any midwives or physicians would not notice. Others concluded that, yes, demons and the devil could impregnate female witches, and male witches could impregnate succubi, and that these children were cambion, hybrids that were suckled from the witch's teat. The witch's teat is not a way of saying their breasts. The witch's teat, the witch's mark, the devil's mark, all these terms describe the same thing. A common aspect of early modern witch hunting, although by no means universal, was the belief that all witches, immediately upon agreeing to serve the devil, were marked in some way by their new master. This mark could be literally anything. Scars, birthmarks, warts, extra nipples, or just unusually pain-resistant skin. They could all be used as conclusive evidence that a person had taken up with the enemy of mankind. Good luck arguing that you got that scar after you dropped a hatchet on your foot, since witch hunters often claimed that they could tell the difference between a natural blemish and those inflicted by Lucifer. Such marks were often hidden in the armpits or between the toes. The mark was not only a sign of demonic ownership, it was also, as previously mentioned, used to feed infernal offspring as well as the witch's familiar, if they had one. Familiars were often present in British witch trials, both in England and Scotland, usually taking the form of household animals, or rarely as other humans. Familiars were believed to be bound demons or spirits, existing to aid the witch in their magic, as well as remind them of their newfound loyalty to the devil. They would be fed through the witch's mark, in a mockery of human maternity, and in some cases the familiar came to be treated as the witch's child. For one accused of witchcraft, having a wart and a pet cat was sometimes enough to see you burnt for being a witch. Discovering the mark was often done through the use of pricking, a tactic of witch hunters that made use of a needle to prod and poke a suspect's body in search of the devil's mark. What was meant to happen was that the prosecutors would prod the suspected witch's body hard enough to draw blood and cause pain, if they did not bleed or react to the pain, particularly on odd parts of the body that might be marks, this was considered evidence that they were supernaturally protected. However, surviving tools call into question this um, empirical method. Some of these pins have been found to have a sharp end and a blunt end, both identical to the site. 
The inferred story was that witch hunters, if failing to find an expected mark, could surreptitiously swap the ends around. Further prodding would cause no pain and no blood, when before there would have been, and thus you have your evidence of witchcraft. Similarly, there are needles with hollow handles and retractable points, like prop knives used on stage that appear to penetrate. To onlookers, this would look like the needle had gone several inches deep into the suspect's body and elicited no reaction in pain or bleeding. When it was the word of an established and respected witch finder against a suspected witch, there was little defence. The trial by water, also known as dunking or swimming a witch, is one of the most well-known methods of determining guilt in cases of witchcraft. Usually conducted on a lake or in a river, the defendant would be stripped naked and then bound into a ball, right thumb to left foot and left thumb to right foot, and lowered into the water three times. If they sank, they were considered innocent of the crime, while if they floated, this was proof of their wickedness. So what was the connection between evil servant of the devil and floats in a pond? Well, there are records of trials by water in some of the oldest law codes in human history, which long-time listeners may remember from the Lost episodes where we looked at ancient Babylon. The Code of Hammurabi dictated the method of a trial by water, and it is roughly similar to the early modern examples, with the notable exception that in the Babylonian procedure, floating was a sign of innocence rather than guilt. The reason for the switch round is unclear, and contemporaries debated the reasons why the guilty would float when others would sink. Possible reasons are quite varied. One is that the witches had renounced their baptism by serving the devil, and so anything resembling such a holy ceremony is now impossible for them to replicate. James VI of Scotland, and later England, would claim that water was a pure element that would not accept the guilty, while another, the physician Wilhelm Adolf Schreiber, witnessed such an ordeal in Lemgo, Germany, around 1583, and was so impressed that he advocated the process in his On the Examination and Trying of Witches by Cold Water. Due to his professional knowledge of human anatomy, he hypothesised that witches, by having intercourse with the devil at the Sabbath, gain part of his supernatural nature. As the devil is a, quote, imponderable spirit of air, end quote, the witches likewise became lighter than water, and therefore they float. This is, by the way, why I included a clip of Monty Python at the beginning of today's episode, as Schreiber's argument is the one being parodied in that scene. I'm actually quite proud of myself for managing this long without dropping a Python reference into the show, to be honest. Despite how wise in the ways of science Schreiber was, there's another one for you, the ordeal by water was not universally accepted by either advocates of witch trials or their opponents. Our old friends, Institeris and Sprenger, complained that trials by ordeal were generally useless at ascertaining guilt or innocence. A witch could call on the power of the devil to aid them in passing any ordeal. In the Malleus Maleficarum, they point out that, for this reason alone, Persons who request that they are allowed to take part in an ordeal to prove their innocence should be suspected all the more. The outcome that specified guilty often swapped in different times and regions of Europe, and there are cases in the 1650s of Bavarian soldiers conducting their own trials by water on camp followers, with those that sunk subsequently being executed. 
Now, the trial by water is one of the most poorly treated of all the stereotypes of the witch trials. I've heard many times, from documentaries to children's cartoons to comedy sketches, that this was a virtual death sentence. If you were innocent, you drowned, but if you were guilty, you avoided drowning and were instead burnt. However, this is just simply incorrect. In the vast majority of trials by water, the defendants were tied to a rope that could pull them back to the surface if they sank. That isn't to say that no one ever drowned during a trial by water, but it was never the blatantly self-defeating process that it is often depicted as. So there we have it, an explanation of what the witch's sabbat was thought by some to be, and a couple of the methods of proving the guilt of a suspected witch. It's quite a short episode this week, but over the next few weeks we will leave the Holy Roman Empire, having been exiled for our crimes, and settle... where? France? England? Scotland? Liechtenstein? So many options, and we're going to visit all of them. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.